So you go down this cliff, go left down the cliff, yeah. left, and then just tumble for a while, and then you should be there. It's society. They work for each other. They pay each other. They buy houses. They get married and make children. That just sounds like slavery with extra steps. I don't know if you've noticed, but our two-party system is a bowl of shit looking in the mirror at itself. I can't wait for the episode of Who Wants to Be a Millionaire where all the contestants team up and they overpower the hosts and they share the money. The message of Occupy Wall Street is I would prefer not to play the existing game. We are a socialist party and there are social solutions to the problems. Communal lifestyles, I don't know about that. <laughs> no one can tell me me want to do. Wow, you're a real anarchist. And now we had a king. I thought we were an autonomous collective. No words for you puppets of the West. Communism forever. God, God those communists are amazing. Welcome, welcome. This is the Three Left Show, live in the studio once again. I'm your host, Daniel Platt. Okay, should be up now. Let me read you the intro. This program covers news, issues, and anything of interest from a radical and revolutionary left perspective. The curse of the nonconformist flows through my veins. For the curious or the committed, promoting a post-capitalist present and future via direct democracy in a commons economy, discussing the means and ends of a multi-tendency left that is of itself and for itself, the meeting point of socialism, anarchism, and ecology, talking about the equitable equal future we proudly wave the flags of the three lefts how are you doing michael i am doing well can you hear me so since we're doing the show i am not at the cancel como rally we're we're gonna cancel como it's happening maybe uh i went to an action wednesday that was uh vocal new york um so i should be sharing that eventually when i get how was it. it Um, It was like a virtual rally. It was the two activists and a third, uh, or fourth rather, um, and me. I actually came to interview the uh, third guy, Lukey Forbes. He's running for mayor, uh, and he's um, a blacktivist that started during BLM. And so he's the most radical person running for mayor, for my standard anyway. And Uh, primary? Actually, that was something I'll, I'll clarify with him. When he announced, he was like, I'm going to try to get as many lines as possible. He doesn't care what line he's on, which means that like maybe he'll run in the Democratic primary and petition separately for another line. I don't think he has the organization to do that. I'm just spitballing, though. Um, again, if we help him, maybe he can get petitions, enough petitions for two lines. It would certainly helpful to do one on an independent line because right now you have Democrats fighting over, um, voter petitions right now. You know, they're racing to get to, uh, the, the apartment buildings where all the old Democrats live because they'll sign anything. No offense because we should all sign things. It's, It's so low effort. Just an intro for the audience. Uh, we're going to do ecological stories. But first, since a Democrat is in the White House and, you know, last year, the last two years, there was there was it was quite a r- drumbeat of a story. It was in the national conversation talking about the big economic issues uh, or at least trying to get there. Um, now that seems to be, you know. We're back to a normalcy. Now, Biden is, you know, he's, 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 he, he was accurate or rather telling the truth in one way. Things are back to normal in that progressives propose things 
and the uh, Team Democrat does things um, to make sure they're not in legislation and that we do what is necessary to keep the economy afloat to mitigate the economic impacts of uh, the crises of capitalism, whether it be through the form of a pandemic or housing crunch or stock loss, whatever. So you have Fox News and other outlets um, priming and pumping the culture war once again. Um, I don't know if you were old enough, but this is this started all the way back in the Bush years when there was an anti-war movement, and there was you know, when the, I think it was as soon as the Democrats took the House back because of basically on an anti-Iraq war platform, which of course was pretty lame um, once once implemented. And that well, I'm going to be yeah. honest. That's I when the war on Christmas started, bit, is what I'm saying. Yeah, I'm a bit younger than you, so I didn't even become political. I didn't become politically active or really understanding of what was going on until, like, basically until Obama got elected. Once Obama got elected, that was kind of the beginning of when I started to like actually like. look at stuff and at that point i was like a naive liberal so i was kind of like of the passive this is sure okay but certainly you could be a participant in the culture war as it uh, developed or as it exists in uh in cable news outlets you know following the daily show it's so easy vaguely progressive yeah i was exactly vaguely progressive i was vaguely progressive while also being vaguely libertarian. I considered yeah. myself both of those and used my libertarianism to justify my progressiveness, that I don't care what you do. I, You can do whatever you want as long as you're not hurting anybody. And as long yeah. as you're not hurting anybody, I'm not shaming you. Right. But what if, Michael, what if our entire system is hurting people? Um, exactly. And that's what I realized. Yes. Then that's the difference between vaguely uh, progressive and leftist uh, to me. Just want to wrap up that culture war stuff, whether it's, you know, whatever Fox News covers, because they usually cover the private decisions of private entities. But not just dismiss the conservative, like, um, outlets, both old and new, their distraction machines, right, from talking about, say, uh, what is our economy actually going to do and uh, what are the solutions or what, what, what are the possibilities um, and what kind of crisis we're, we're actually facing, you know, climate change. Uh, yeah, anyway. So yeah. that's why we're going to do a, a continuing ecological uh, theme from the um, solar punk stuff from before. But I just want to – oh, yeah, so, like – even a Prager U did a video on where Disaster Souza talks of Marcuse uh, incorrectly, but um, Marcuse wrote a book called The One Dimensional Man. And certainly, uh, certain things that postmodern writers were, you know, things that were very basic now were very astute observations back in the 60s and 50s. And his was that market forces uh, encourage conformity. They force a conformity that in college you can be a free thinker. Um, we have these libertine, not libertarian, but libertine where it is, yes, like vaguely progressive and libertarian outlook of let and live, let live and basic positive values like kindness and, and generosity and whatever. 
we, but then we have to get a job. Then we have to get real. And then we have to participate in the capitalist market. And we conform. And it's, I'm racking myself, um, feeling pretty down or rather angry because it's everywhere, it seems. Even in online leftism with Twitch and YouTube, that a lot of the content is like also moving in a conformist. It's, it's, it, it, there's conformism there. I'll give examples that I'm on, on my mind. So, Fought Slime made an observation that, like, about the culture war, where, like, he's, he's covering the culture war in a sarcastic way, and then he'll cut to himself being serious, talk, mentioning the coup in Myanmar, other human rights violations in the world, other actual news that we should be talking about, and then going, coming back to the culture war, but then also recognizing that we can't just let the right wing spew this stuff without response, we have to engage it. And this is how, like, because not only because it's the marketplace of ideas and they have to be challenged, but also that this is like to, in order to get views and in order to have our space in the marketplace of idea, capitalist markets, we have to engage the game. We have to play this game of culture war and not economic war, class war, identity, socialism, whatever. That's what Dennis D'Souza called uh, cancel culture, identity socialism, because we're trying to make, well, we want equality, and apparently we do this by um, oppressing people, I guess. But, um, but like, um, so, uh, Michael, did you see, it was in the last week that, like, Vosh and a guy named Mike from PA, who's also a left Twitch streamer, who does more of the following of elections, they had a spat that was like two hours where they basically belligerently slap fight fought each other. And it was pretty disgusting to me because you have, there's an immaturity that I see that it works well when you're like making fun of conservatives and engaging in right. the culture war. Immaturity is because the whole part of the slippery slope arguments and all of the things that permeate our, our media culture our media diets is it's very immature but that's well, what kind I'm of be honest, yeah i didn't watch it mm-hmm. i didn't think it was worth it i was like these this is uh well, good for you I, I i cut out after like i think i i gave it 20 minutes and they were just yelling at each other making well, well, immature I've jokes had, i've uh taken a step back from watching leftist content from content creators Mm -hmm. because ultimately there's uh, a difference. I view there as being a difference between education and entertainment. And most of these uh, content creators are creating educate or entertaining content. Entertainment or uh, enter Asian. Well, they're making entertaining content but it's meant to be entertaining to the people who aren't leftists and educate them on leftism yeah and for that they need to be immature which seems to be the like you need to go lowest common denominator to it and make gay jokes even though and then like so so what these two guys were doing right they're both pretty intelligent well-read lefty guys and one follows more elections than and vosh does more like general national milieu uh, generalizing. And one, like Mike B.A. was like, they were arguing about drama stuff 
that was unimportant, really. Um, but they both dislike each other. They were both arguing about who was being bad faith or whose audience is in bad faith. And while they're both like getting, you know, like they're both dunking on each other for basically making immature, meaning misogynistic or some kind of homophobic kind of banter, where it's like, oh, yeah, I'll come and, you know, do this to you. Da, da, da. You know, it's, it was very disgusting as far as just like, why are they continuing on like this? Why don't one of them just say, okay, let's calm down, step back and take this a bit at a time and stop yelling at each other. So it, it was, there's another Twitch streamer, Dylan, who, who broke it down as a mess. And that was, he took three hours. I'm not, I, was, I didn't watch a second of it, but I, I, I could get where, where he's coming from. But anyway, so conformity is everywhere. And it kind of drives me a little, if anything's kind of making me lonely and feeling a little nuts is that I'm surrounded by conformity. It seems like everything, even in, in nonprofit sector and doing community projects like gardening, there's still this era of market forces or starting a new business. You know, I, um, there was a, you know, there, there were these activists that like they, they interact with thousands of people and they're like, Hey, uh, those that want a business idea, here's this thing that like is annoying me right now. And I step up like, you know, like a schmo and say like, well, actually I could help you with that. That sounds right up my alley. Could you give me some money for that? Or I could help you as a friend. And she's like, no, 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 no. I was just pitching an idea because I know all these people who want to start a business but don't have any ideas. And I'm like, how can they not have ideas? There's so much work to do. There's so many needs. There's so many, like, niches to fill. How? I mean, what's missing is resources to start said businesses. Really, there's the impediment of high rents. No, So there's no real spaces to do to start your business. No food hubs to, if you want to, like, make pickles, which was, like, an idea of mine. You know, it's like I could try to do it at home, but really I want like a little uh, food hub kitchen to work with. And I think there's um, a little that exists already, but not a lot of it. And so like we don't have economic freedom until we have either easy to obtain credit or simply grants so you can get funded and and cheap rents so that your overhead isn't so high. And the stim check would be enough to Start on your dreams, let's say. That basic income check that even if it's one time can still be quite the boost, but instead we're spending it on survival. Uh, and that's that's the trap. The trap. Let's get moving. I want to get off my chest. Sure. Uh, so how was your week, Michael? Do you have any, my, do anything interesting? Well, I have... I got... A job, and I am Congrats. doing the education, or I'm the, doing like the pre-job education currently, where I'm like, I'm taking, or I'm doing the licensing education. I need to take a license, or I need to get a license, so I'm doing the licensing course, and mm-hmm. it's uh, it's about the insurance industry. Oh, I see. All right, good luck with that. So yeah. let's move on. Well, I'm learning all about how the rich people shuffle their money around. Mm -hmm. There are lots of different ways that they shuffle money around. Oh, yes. Modified endowment contracts are life insurance Mm -hmm. policies that are designed to be investment vehicles and are, as such, uh, able to accumulate more money at a faster rate 
than traditional life insurance policies are allowed to. Thanks to deregulation, I assume. Um, uh, or some other rules. Well, whatever. They get around it. They get around whatever. Yeah. It's, whatever it's, it's innovation. It's innovation. So the rest of the hour we're going to spend on short, piffy, positive stories that were called for various means uh, from local or regional outlets. Uh, this one's from Pittsburgh's NPR news station. The first two stories are related to our cancel culture, the, can- the economic class war culture, canceling pipelines. So pipeline number one has been canceled. Constitution pipeline project ends as builder sites diminished return on investment. Filed by Scott Blanchard in Pittsburgh. A pipeline builder has dropped a controversial project that would have routed fracking natural gas from Pennsylvania's Marshallis Shale into New York. The Constitution Pipeline got federal approval way back in 2014. And officials thought, and that's during Obama's terms, the officials thought it would be delivering natural gas to New York as soon as the following year. But regulatory setbacks and opposition from environmental groups delayed the project. In 2016, for example, New York State denied a required water permit. The U.S., by the way, they did that because of activist pressure. The U.S. Supreme Court declined to hear their appeal. In September of 2019, the Fed Energy Regulatory Commission later ruled that New York's Department of Environmental Conservation, that's DEC, had waived its right to deny the permit because it took too long to act. So simply, you don't have to deny if you just drag your feet long enough. But in New York, which has banned fracking, and where, uh, because of a very serious and organized campaign, uh, and where 2019 Governor Andrew Cuomo signed into law the state's goal of net zero carbon emissions by 2050, still very long away goal, uh, but that was signed, uh, yes, back in 2019, which it, it's, it was basically like a watered-down Green New Deal which didn't have any binding targets or anything like that, but just at least set them. Uh, um, and, and it was called like the Community Resilience Act or something. The pipeline still faced opposition. In an interview following FERC's decision, Como said, any way that we can challenge it, we will. Um, this is because there was enough pressure on him, as there is a much more now for many other reasons. This week, Williams, which operates the pipeline company, said the potential return on its investment had diminished in such a way that further development is no longer supported. Environmental groups have cheered the news. Quoting Earth Justice Staff Attorney Maureen Nansett Smith, defeating the Constitution pipeline is an enormous victory for advocates who have been fighting for eight years to protect New York State and its waterways. At this critical moment for our climate, we cannot afford unnecessary fossil fuel projects that will lead to more fracking and exasperate the crisis. The Oneonta Daily Star reported that some pro-fracking landowner groups and trade unions had supported it. Constitution's impact will still be felt on at least one Pennsylvania farm. In Swaswahana County, Pennsylvania, the company used eminent domain to take five acres of the Holloran family's land. Workers cut down more than 550 trees, including the sugar maples that the family had used for its syrup business. And that's where it ends, actually. It just, it just ends that, oh, yep, nope, can't, can't grow maple trees anymore. Uh, or they can regrow them, but <laughs> they lost their business. Yeah. 
one of those many um, families shown in like uh, Frackland. Uh, this story is published in partnership with State Impact Pennsylvania, a collaboration between WESA Allegheny Front, basically listing uh, local community media. The other example is the Atlantic Coast Pipeline. This is from Charlotte, down south, or mostly south. Duke Energy, Dominion abandoned the $8 billion Atlantic Coast Pipeline, filed by John Downey from July of last year. The 8600000000 Atlantic Coast Pipeline is dead. Dominion Energy Incorporated and Duke Energy Corp. are canceling the project because of continuing court delays likely to drive the price tag ever higher. That would threaten the economic viability of the project, they say. Bound up in the cancellation is Dominion's decision, announced separately, to sell its gas transmission business to Berkshire Halfway Energy. That's not Soros. What's the other billionaire that uh, is kind of liberal? Duke holds a 47% share of the partnership. That would mean that $4.3 billion to $5.3 billion have been spent on the project already once all the exit costs are calculated. Boo effing who dominion owns 53 percent of the project after buying out the southern company's five percent share and blah blah financial biz info keystone construction that was a keystone connection duke and dominion specifically cite the april decision by a federal judge in montana that vacated a key water permit for the controversial keystone xl that was issued by the u.s army corps of engineers thank you u.s army corps of engineers uh, do you remember that was during, or, or rather, Standing Rock, Standing Rock protest, mm-hmm. known as the Nationwide Permit 12? The permission to cross water bodies and wetlands was issued under the ex- expedited process, also used to permit the Atlantic Coast one. A decision by the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals at the end of May, allowing the order to stand until it is heard on the merits, threatened to delay Duke and Dominion project at least another year. A Montana district court decision is also likely to prompt similar challenges in other circuits related to permits issued under the nationwide program, including the Atlantic Coast Pipeline. This uh, both companies said in a joint press release. The partners note that appeals court indicated an appeal is not likely to be successful in the Keystone case, creating new and serious challenges. Mm, I would say so. The potential for a Supreme Court stay of a court district's injunction would not only change the judicial venue, meaning they're not going to go forward. Pure play. The sale of substantially all of Dominion Gas's transmission storage segment assets to an affiliate Berkshire Halfway was also a major factor in the decision. Farrell says the move is meant to focus the company as utility pure play. Huh? I mean, I guess they don't have assets, so they're just, it's like a, as a service, you know, collecting rents. Uh, from other other ways. Over the uh, this is quoting them. Over the past several years, the company has taken series of steps, including mergers with QSTAR Corporation, Scana Corporation, and the divestiture of Blue Racer Midstream and Merchant Generation assets to increase materially the state regulated nature of our profile, enhance the customer experience, strengthen our balance sheet, and improve transparency and predictability. Uh. Got enough of that. Uh, 
corporate speak at. This narrowing of focus will also allow us to increase our long-term earnings growth rate guidance by around 30%, even without the pipeline in that fancy. Dominion will continue to own and operate its own national gas utilities like Dominion Energy North Carolina, based in Gastonia. It owns such utilities in Virginia, Carolinas, Ohio, and Utah. It will also retain its non-state regulated utility operations, most notably a 50% passive and unlevered interest in Cove Point, which is a liquefied gas plant, a gas, natural gas facility in Maryland. That allows it to ship it overseas, which is the whole point of all these gas lines. And the company's zero-carbon nuclear and solar contracted generation fleet, it also hangs on its investments in renewable natural gas. I have no idea what that means because natural gas is not renewable. Um, I know some natural gas can be recycled and reprocessed, but again, big, big greenhouse gas emissions from that. The sale includes more than 7,700 miles of natural gas storage. So, yeah, so it's, let's see, pipe to, pipeline to nowhere. The cancellation also recognizes the reality that the Fourth Circuit Court of Appeals has consistently ruled against the pipeline on every challenge to various permits. Oh, I wonder why. Uh, because uh, it's polluting, it's damaging, and it's destroying the climate. So even though we're not, like, doing what Britain did where, like, uh, a court ruled that because an air expansion would increase carbon impacts that it just shouldn't be built so it's kind of like we're doing that but in a very roundabout sneaky way because we can't do anything up front uh, that would upset people well that just sounds like you could use that to get away with not allowing anything you don't like because they're it's their version of there is no ethical consumption of under capitalism, yeah, there, there is, is no ethical production under climate change, and so any production they don't like, they'll say, "Oh, that just creates more pollution." So no, I mean that uh, is what that is what anyone who owns property or business or means of production fears from us equalists, yeah. us lefties, yeah. is that because yes, if you do take what we say to its logical conclusion, yeah, it is. Like, yeah, there's no ethical consumption. So we should really consume less or the minimum amount. Um and this destroys mar- capitalist markets. You know, we talk of replacing them with socialist markets. We kind of need to go into what exactly that means and how it's different or how how it's the same but better. Oh yeah. Um, yeah. Oh, so, oh, yep. so maybe uh, a future so, episode where we just talk of mutualism, which I think you said you're moving towards. And, and I like mutualism, too, because uh, that is basically the, the tendency of just talking about socialist markets, um, because socialism is, is not like a lack of markets. It's just a lack of capital markets or a lack of the market forces that that force conformity versus a market that ensures accessibility and thus freedom, mm-hmm. right? Not negative well, freedom, like the freedom to dump toxic waste, but the freedom to open a barbershop. So not to give too much of a preview into that conversation. I've actually, I, I know it'll, it's going to sound strange, but I've recently started uh, thinking about and looking into the concept of mutual investment uh, firms and a mutual operative investment and using yeah. a bank 
that will be able to loan money to workers so that those workers can buy their uh, workplace from their employers. Yeah, I covered this in, um, well, it wasn't that in particular, but it was, uh, I covered a story well, in season one where it was a community and um, property investment. It was a cooperative and property investment where, um, was it 50 to 100 residents basically pooled money to buy the vacant uh, mini mall and hmm. start renting it at fair cost to basically so small businesses could actually exist because as the only way you know we say we respect small business right. economy well we can't do that well we, there are big landlords that do not have they do not need to negotiate with their right, exactly. small tenants uh, which my business owner friend is uh, grappling with in that you know like they when the pandemic hit and they ask uh, i need i i'm my business is closed right now and my sales have dropped in half I need a different rate. And they say, okay, we can give you two months at lower rate than only like, but two months. And I'm like, no, it needs to go on. Like that's, that's not a negotiation. Right. And now they've uh, tacked a letter on the door saying, uh, pay all your back rent or get out. Um, wow. and, and pyramid pyramid, which is a kind of a big company around here. They own one of the big malls and they're currently suing some of their tenants, particularly the ones in the food court, for their back rent, despite that, well, the mall was oh, closed for half the year. Where is it going to come from? And that's one of those contradictions where, like, these companies need the profitability. They need to collect rents. And if we aren't producing and consuming X amount of carbon emissions and and, and crap of various kinds, like... The rent doesn't get collected. The economy can't keep moving. And this is right. um, like because their end of profitability kind of brings it all down. It's it's totally top heavy. Yeah. So more information. Let's see. Additional infrastructure. Um, just to wrap this up. More information on what might what this might mean will come when Duke holds its second quarter meeting. Yeah, this is actually more financial news. So it's and it's, it's from Dominion's point of view. Right. You know, but. The, the new the, the the main point of this is uh, courts were holding it up and now they are not building the pipeline. And this comes from direct action. This comes from lobbying. This comes from all kinds of activism. It does get the goods. Um, it is important. Now um, I want to share a post from Solar Punk Collective. It's just a quick little like call it prayer or meditational. One of the penalties of an ecological education is that one lives alone in a world of wounds. Much of the damage inflicted on land is quite invisible to laymen. An ecologist must, must either harden his shell or their shell and make believe that the consequences of science are none of his business, or he must be the doctor who sees the marks of death in a community that believes itself well and does not want to be told otherwise. Moving on. I have three other stories that will round out the hour. They're all very quick. Uh, one is from 350.org, an organization I kind of have problems with because they like, in some ways, they are an arm of the Democratic Party. They will never challenge the establishment. They are they take part in patronage politics, which is a phrase I will be using more often because I feel there needs to be language and vocabulary 
to talk about a political system that is not just centered around nebulous ideas of corruption and fairness and meritocracy. Mm. Because patronage politics is kind of the opposite of meritocracy, right? Where you're hiring and your people climb up the ladder, not based on merit or how qualified they are, but who they know, right? Unless right, you get exactly. un, unless you get unqualified people, right? But the well, thing about it's meritocracy, but it comes from the top, and those who have the power can just say, "Yeah, I'm gonna hire the person I know," and now that's how you rise to the top. It's about who you know rather than uh, yeah. how hard. Well, it's how hard you work and luck and who you know, and who you know is oftentimes just luck 60 to 70 percent and then uh so there's also the factors of like the people doing the hiring make the criteria for who is qualified so you can still say Mm -hmm. oh they're qualified but they're qualified in the way that i want them to be or that patronage is a club or it's like a you know it's it's a team and there's gatekeeping of various types and in fact requiring people to be certain levels of qualified is a form of gatekeeping you know, don't run for office if you have a small business uh, or, or if you're the, uh, just a service provider. No, no, no. You need a college degree. You need to be uh, have managed something. You know, don't run for office if you haven't managed something or dealt with a budget. You're not qualified. These are the things I hear um, concerns when I ran for office. Like, oh, you're just a 20-something millennial. What do you know of government? Like, have you worked in an office before? Have you, you know, dealt with budgets? Like, well, no, but I have great ideas. And mm-hmm. I'm pretty sure there are clerks that do the actual bean counting. Isn't, isn't yeah. the point of representation that I don't have to be an accountant? But no, the person who wins is the person with uh, who's a CPA. And the CPA gets to say, I can make sure we're fiscally responsible. And in that way, even though we're in a democratic city or democratic county, conformity the law and rules of conformity mean that like, we're actually, they're all Republicans when it comes to actually making policy, you know, fiscally right. conservative, exactly. socially liberal, moderate Republicans. Oh, so, absolutely. Now here's where things can get monkey though. 350.org on New York city announcing its intent. So maybe it's okay. Intent to ban new fossil fuel projects. Very cool. Though intent is not action. It's the beginning. New Yorkers are celebrating a groundbreaking win in the fight for climate justice today as Mayor Bill de Blasio announced New York City's intention to stop all new fossil fuel projects within the serving of the city. This is the largest municipal ban announced of its kind globally, building on the mounting global movement for a just transition off fossil fuels to a renewable energy economy that works for all. Now, this is the language they use. I'm not keen on it as much anymore, but it's still good, I guess. Um, Don't need to quote that. Today's announcement builds on recent moves by the New Yorkers pushing the city to take concrete climate action, including divesting its 215 billion, sorry, billion pension funds from fossil fuels, uh, enacting nation-leading legislation to slash pollution from big buildings, pursuing Exxon and other big oil corporations in court for climate costs, and expanding investments in renewables, particularly wind and solar. 
Community resistance to frack gas projects within and around the city continues to grow, including over 70 elected officials opposing the Williams fracked gas pipeline. I think there's one that would be crossing the Hudson from New Jersey. I'm not sure what the route for the Williams one is. And tens of thousands of New Yorkers have called on the governor and the New York State Department of Environmental Conservation, them again, uh, to stop Williams and all frack gas projects. Um, because this is basically the, the organized resistance to the quote-unquote all-of-the-above strategy where, yeah, we'll burn less coal, but we're going to replace that with gas that actually creates more greenhouse gas emissions. Less carbon, but more methane. Exactly. The mayor is set to issue an executive order to implement this ban. So this is not something the council is doing, which is like, what? It has to be done through executive order, or it will be done through executive order. Do not like that. Uh, this will be a critical step toward climate action, including ordinances, regulations, and building code changes. Okay, so then it goes, it filters down, in theory. In New York, utilities, National Grid, and Con Ed have attempted to hold New Yorkers' energy needs hostage, especially for small businesses and black and brown communities. In the midst of the Trump administration slashing hard-won climate protections, U.S. municipalities have begun to restrict new gas hookups and require electrification. And the problem is with electrification, though, is that you still need the energy, and renewables are not going to be able to replace everything uh, that comes from gas uh, from fossil fuels. So something that I will talk more about in the future or now um, is that there needs to be an understanding of just how much use needs to be cut. I've reached the end of this article. You can contact Lindsay Marion, and that, that that's uh, in the article. I think that's the person at 350.org. And by the way, the uh, 350 refers to the parts per million in the atmosphere that we shouldn't have gone over to kind of reduce, to prevent climate change. Uh, we're at 450 right now, or 430 or something. But like I, I got into a pseudo argument, very short, on in the Nun Top, that's New Urbanist Memes Group, which is very, very obnoxious, again, immature conversations. And it was about the missing middle, like that most new construction done by capitalist enterprise is either five-story ticky-tack commercial buildings or pencil towers. So there's a missing middle of all kinds of different mid-rise and high-rise buildings. And I pointed out that, you know, yes, there's a missing middle as far as like, you know, a certain density, but five stories is actually fine. We really, a future... The future, a low-carbon, low-energy-use future, which should not be dependent on elevators. In most buildings, elevators account for 5% of all energy use. And that's the stat I found. I was told in school that, like, you know, elevators are just, they, they're necessary, but they should be not depended on. Or maybe it's other books, ecological, like, design books where, Again, like with other transportation and heavy machinery, particularly when it comes to um, the disabled and um, uh, accessibility, those should be exceptions. And that most housing should be walk-ups or something where stairs are the primary form because we all need more exercise too for yeah. those that are able-bodied. And 
of course, I get a lot of the pushback that's just very immature, like, you know, because I say, like, heavy machinery, like elevators, should be exception. And, of course, no one can is mature enough to read into why exceptions I mean for disabled apartment buildings or apartment buildings for the elderly and stuff. And and they'll say, like, well, well you know, the the disabled have the right to live beyond just the first floor. Yeah. Oh, it, absolutely. And I'm not, like, disagreeing with that. But I'm also like, well, the priority here is, you know, we're going to serve, we're going to maintain human rights, but we kind of need to do it in a way where we are, again, like, if, if we're taking climate change seriously and the reductions we need to make in energy use, regardless of where that energy source is coming from, right? Because we've covered in previous episodes, there is just not enough heavy metal inter- minerals to switch to renewables. And even if we do, we can make elevators more efficient. But what that means is that we'll just be building more buildings with more elevators. Where somebody uh, giving a, uh, he linked an article from 2004 about, you know, new, the efficiencies of elevate, like new, like the change of efficiency in elevators. Like, oh, well, they're not that bad, you know. Uh, low-rise hydraulic elevators are, you know, use three times the energy as a traction, a high-rise traction elevator. Right. I'm like, yeah, but more people are using it, and a lot of the energy that elevators use is when it's idle. You know, like even if you turn the lights off, like with, um, you know, making it a smart elevator, that it's the same logic as like we'll have a smart city, and that will allow us to, we'll have we'll oh, use less energy. And then, even on top of that. Have you ever, um, are you familiar with the Shabbos elevators in Israel? Yes. They don't work on the Shabbos because uh, pre- using electricity is uh, not kosher to, oh, in certain no, 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 no. sense. That's not what it is. Oh, no, sorry. They're always continuously running. Continuously. Yeah, they're continuously running. Yeah, they're going up and down continuously. So you don't have to press any buttons. Because it's the act of pressing the button in that is considered work. Yeah, I just think it's crazy. The there was the type of elevator in the twenties that like definitely went out of style since elevators are for people like in wheelchairs and and uh, not able bodied. Is the type of elevator that's like a conveyor belt, a vertical conveyor belt, where it's like these wooden boxes that are like going con- continuously going up and down uh, on a mm-hmm. on a pulley system. And, and those are kind of cool, but again, like you have to be lively when you step on and off, but uh, it means you don't actually have to wait, and it can move a lot of people. So like for very, um, where a lot of people are moving up and down, those would be, I would like to bring those back, but I don't think there have been a oh, modern yeah, version sense. of it. Let's see. Now for two kind of more second world stories um, that are more general, like one's very general, one's very large, and the other is... Very small because it's about one house. Though I thought I also had a story about how a city in California had also just um, banned all uh, new uh, fossil fuel, not just fossil fuel infrastructure, but like new gas hookups. They went the step further. Um, What was the other thing about them? Also thinking about the the Minneapolis, they banned new drive-throughs. And how we have a new, a Popeyes wants to build a new drive-through at a pretty heavy intersection in Albany. Uh, And I'm like, we shouldn't be approving any new drive-throughs. This should not even be considered. 
Especially yeah. since like they're building it in a creek bed and we should be degrowing these areas. These African nations use satellite monitoring to cut deforestation by 18%. Not a very lar large number, but cutting deforestation is better than the ever-increasing deforestation, say, in Brazil. Mm -hmm. Now, this is from the Good News Network. They're going to be picking stories that, you know, are positive regardless of, of context. But let's see. Yeah. Um, but it's an interesting idea, like using forest buffers and, and, re and tree planting. So, like, these... These efforts are are having an impact. And I think I covered this also, something similar in Australia and India. Deforestation dropped by 18% in two years in African countries where organizations subscribe to receive warnings from a new service using satellites to detect decreases in forest cover in the tropics. The carbon emissions avoided by reducing deforestation is worth about 150 to almost $700 million. Although I'm not sure, why would you measure carbon emissions in dollars? Based on the ability to lower emissions to reduce the detrimental economic consequences, you know, just measuring an economic consequence. Those findings come from new research uh, into the effect of GLAD called the Global Land Analysis and Discovery System, available on the free and interactive interface Global Forest Watch. Launched in 2016, so five years ago, GLAD produces frequent high-resolution alerts when it detects a drop in forest cover. Governments and other interest, those other interested, so pretty much anyone, can, in halting deforestation can then subscribe to the alerts and then intervene to limit forest loss. So you can actually kind of hold illegal foresting or ranchers accountable or talk to the communities that might be using too much firewood for their cooking or heating. Although food and biomass is pretty good when it comes to doing that stuff, there needs to be sustainable forestry, which is a story that I just read from Low Tech magazine about how you would kind of, you'd raise trees and like clip them so that it was basically, you get a tree that's all branches and no trunk. Mm -hmm. So that that's like, the, that's what you, that's how you get like a lot of firewood out of, a row of trees in a farm. The research was led by Franny. And like, you know how farms, like they, they have a line of trees um, in all of the, to make their squares and stuff like that, that would be their source of firewood. So it wouldn't be like a grove that they have to wait to regrow. They just use, you know, each tree for each season or so. Um, the research was led by Fanny Mafiette, a postdoctoral researcher and applied at econ in the Nelson Institute Another tagline to that is the Department of Agriculture and Applied Economics in the University of Wisconsin-Madison. Maviette collaborated with Jennifer Alex Garcia at Oregon State, Catherine Shea at the World Resources Institute, and Amy Pickens at the University of Maryland. They studied deforestation in 22 tropical countries across South America, Africa, Asia from 2011-2018. Mafiette and her co-authors set out to understand whether these kinds of automated alerts could achieve their goal in reducing forest loss, which has global climate implications. Land use changes like deforestation account for 6 to 17% of global emissions. And avoiding deforestation is several times more effective at reducing carbon emissions and regrowing forests. The first question was to look at whether there was any impact from having access to this alert system. Then we were looking at the effect of users 
subscribing to this data to receive these alerts in specific areas. Simply, being covered by GLAAD did not help a country combat deforestation. Only those African countries in which organizations had actually subscribed to receive alerts saw a decrease. Intuitively, this finding makes sense. Having access to information is good, but what you need to change the course of an issue are people committed to using that information. However, deforestation did not decrease in South America or Asian countries, even where organizations subscribe to receive warnings. There are multiple potential causes for this discrepancy. Here are their thoughts. We think that we see an effect mainly in Africa due to two main reasons. One is because GLAD added more to efforts in Africa than on other continents in the sense that there was already some evidence of countries using monitoring systems in countries like Indonesia and Peru, Colombia, Venezuela, which are a large part of our sample, and they had significant political unrest during this period. Also, maybe a government that isn't able. The GLAD program is still young, and as more governments and organizations sign up to receive these warnings and decide how to intervene at sites of deforestation, its systems influence may grow. Developed by a team at the University of Maryland that includes one of Mafia's collaborators, GLAD made several improvements over its predecessors. It has a very high spatial resolution, roughly 900 square meters, which is orders of magnitude more precise than older tools. And it can provide alerts up to every eight days if the skies are cloud-free when satellites re-image a section of Earth. Users can then define custom areas to monitor. They then receive weekly emails available in six languages. Going forward, the team is looking to evaluate the effect of new features of the monitoring platform, such as data that can inform forest restoration, while supporting efforts of organizations that try to intervene and halt uh, tree cutting, illegal tree cutting, uh, but also maybe regular logging too, to know like, oh, this is this is an area that needs to need some direct action. Now that we know subscribers of alerts can have an effect on deforestation, there's potential ways in which our work can improve the training they receive and support their efforts. Right. So that's a good wrap up there. I think I would have liked to hear uh, some dialogue from those that were using the system. Like um, yeah. when they got the alert, how did they respond? What was their intervention? What did it look like? Is it I mean, maybe it's, maybe it's the intervention they would usually do, which is actually like maybe, I mean, are they actually fighting off these illegal loggers? Are they going right. to where their camp is and finding them? You know, they get, is it since it's illegal? Or, um, is it just a matter of like calling the cops on them, disrupting their operations that way um, by forcing them to relocate or something like that? Um, so the last one, if I can get this, it's a little blacked out another minute. So actually, let's see if I can read this real quick. Team of students in Morocco have successfully developed an environmentally sustainable home made exclusively of hemp and solar panel. The building was erected as an entry of a of the solar decathlon, which my school, I was oh, I was so close to participating in this as well, but instead it was um, I wasn't in the class or I didn't step up for it. It was organized by the US Department of Energy um Morocco Center, so yeah, so I guess uh, through, a, say, like a foreign grant program, uh, they participated in the U.S. thing. But again, like criteria is everything, because when it comes to the solar decathlon, it was about designing net zero houses, but the criteria 
was geared towards suburban houses. So we're from an urban school and we designed a, it was a roof pod that fit on other apartment buildings. And we scored very low because it's not very marketable because it's to our Manhattan based context. While the one that are the winners look like Cape Cod, New Long Island houses, right? But happened to right. be net zero. But like one of them had a garage and it, I was like, oh, aneurysm time. Cause I'm like, no. <laughs> yeah. So like, uh, they made it out of hempcrete. I don't know if you've heard of hempcrete, but it's like a concrete with, uh, hemp and, and so on. And oh, it's completely carbon sort neutral. Of like, kind of like piecrete, which is made with ice and paper. Uh, yeah, you can consider it like that. Okay. Yeah. We'll pick this up on the other side. Cool. seen the bitter worker this labor paid little in return struggling to meet the monthly bills with the little that she earns and I've seen the developer and the banker with the double bladed loan who in the name of
Okay, we're back. Michael, are you there? Hello, I am here. All right, good. Okay, so let us review very quickly that hempcrete house. Um, now, I'm just going to describe the shape roughly. Uh, think of a blooming onion. Mm-hmm. So, but uh, so it's like it looks like that, sort of. All right. Right. So, yeah. Okay. So I explained the drawback of the solar decathlon uh, from my experience back in college. This is a whole decade ago. Um, we made a solar roof pod. Uh, it was kind of the, uh, what was it? The, the, the compromise. So like, this is what we did stories from my architectural education. So most of my teachers are not, uh, American born. Um, in my, it was third year. I think we had, um, the class, uh, taught by a Spaniard, a uh, class taught by a German and uh, the one I was in taught by an Argentinian. And they both have very different styles in that the German is very technical and is about energy efficiency and it's very engineering focused or whatever. Um, and um, the Argentinian ja, is fo- focused. Is sehr gut. Yes. The Argentinian is, is about form. He's very form focused, very, you know, the aesthetics, you know, and, uh, and then the fo- uh, the Spaniard was kind of in the middle, uh, but a very kind of uh, artsy fartsy, but also very practical and using uh, what is there, what exists. So, oh no, 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 no! Actually, no. That that the the roof pot idea came in later. Um, but uh, but we're in Manhattan. It's upper at, uh, west side here. So we're in, we're in a space where like well, where do you put like a, a single detached house? Like we can't really like we can't design in this neighborhood for that we could put it on a roof though so anyway uh so the one so the argentinian class that i'm in you know we, we make a uh so we pay, we make um our drafts of like a, a proposal of for the solar decathlon we make one that's very uh art you know very form it's like the where the plinth that the house needs to go on and the house is like one object the one with the german was a volkman is his name uh, theirs was very technical looking, you know, modernist, uh, kind of looked like a rector set. Uh, and Folio's was like a, uh, the Spaniard was like, they were thinking about hay bales and make, or, or making a house that was a kind of a cube, uh, or, or rectangular with, uh, made of like Lego pieces. And, uh, and of course the compromise, the one like the, the Spaniards was like the one chosen and then developed with with segments and stuff and pieces but uh the, the the argument between the the argentinian and the german was very fierce because you know we were we were talking like he was like well, what's the the he, he, he was like you know because the professors are critiquing are like we're doing the review and we're you know and the professors are kind of critiquing giving their thoughts and he's talking about like the angle of the roof I'm like, well, you know, the angle has to be like 45 degrees. It has to be the right angle for the solar panels. And he's like, and the Argentinian, I mean, it's, it gets a little heated. He goes like, I don't give a shit about like the angle of the roof. <laughs> Anyways, <laughs> I was like, something I remember vividly. So this spaceship, okay, so the design is unique and was built from only locally sourced hemp, vegetable-based bioresins, and other non-synthetic materials found in the region. This is very important to me. I think, like, in any building in the future, we need to move away from synthetic stuff. Unfortunately, most of our construction, especially when it's done by capital, because what's cheap is what's synthetic. You know, panels, you put on buildings, they're made of plastic materials. Oh, well, guess what, guess, guess, uh, guess what else they are? Flammable. Mm. And that's how you get the Grenville Tower fire and, and other such things. 
So just for the audience, uh, we're picking up on a story about a hemp, uh, house made out of hemp and solar panels made by students in Morocco for the Solar Decathlon, which is a U.S. Department of Energy uh, competition that uh, usually um, where the houses are showcased on the National Mall. This spaceship is advanced in time and reflects a turn not only in North Africa, but in hemp construction, which doesn't have comparable prototypes anywhere in the world. Monica, uh, this is uh, the project leader and a German architect as well. Monica is also the co-founder of Adar Noor, a Spain-based NGO with a focus on using hemp to build environmentally sustainable homes in Morocco's poor and rural regions. The spiritual home, you know, sphere, spans 90 square meters, uh, so it's roughly uh, about a 1,000 square feet, and features 24 PV panels with a total price tag of 120000 The structure actually costs less than half of the most expensive entries in the competition. This was something else that I was griping about with Solar Decathlon. They're built, they're very expensive, A, and B, they're like, they look like suburban homes because, like, there's a criteria for marketability, which we did not meet. But it's like, yeah, but we, ours costs, like, a fraction of theirs. Uh, who are we building for? You know, who are we designing right. for? Basically, sustainability is becomes a luxury good. According to Brumer, the building could be optimized even further if hemp clay boards were installed as internal partitioning walls. I guess they weren't. Although funding restrictions did partially obstruct their original goal, the home features some interesting innovations such as hemp wood-derived panels and protect the underside of the solar panels against extreme weather. An important inclusion for a region which reaches up to 114 degrees in the shade. Something not mentioned in most discussions of PV panels, solar roads, is that solar panels are pretty brittle and uh, can be damaged in many various ways. Now, this is something conservatives will kind of point out, like, they're so brittle. Well, it's not that bad. But in extreme circumstances, like, they're, you know, they have a lifespan just like everything else. Other contestants include students from Morocco's National School of Architecture, National School of Applied Scientists, and the Fraunhofer Center for Silicon PV located in Germany. Monica's building offers the opportunity of an entirely off-grid experience unencumbered by the need for outside electricity, which is the point of all the solar decathlon houses. The uh, cylindrical envelope of a circular building with minimal exposure of the 24 exterior panels gives interior comfort through optimal dampening and thermal phase shift and osmosis of the components of the hemp creep formulation. That's quite a lot of jargon. I'm not going to go into it. Demand for hemp-based building materials has been high lately, especially as more people learn that hempcrete can replace traditional fiberglass, sheetrock, and drywall and offers a superior temperature control, flame resistance, and noise reduction. Soundproofing is rarely taken into account in construction. It's really important. <laughs> the product also has the potential to be carbon neutral, but U.S.-based growers tend to focus on growing hemp for CBD and other compounds instead of hempcrete, which requires taller and more fibrous stalks. You know, if you just focus on the buds. Right. Despite technical difficulties, this Moroccan hemp house shows the world that environmentally sustainable construction is, of course, possible. Yeah. There's another story I have. Um, maybe I covered it a long time ago, but it was about a house made of cork. 
um, which is a tree byproduct, you know. Right. And uh, but cork is also, you know, a bit insulative, and um, can work as soundproofing. So yeah. okay, we're finally going to shift to we go you time to shine. Uh, do you have that story up from Environmental Health News? Yes, I do. So this is, we don't farm because it's trendy. We farm as resistance for healing and sovereignty. Yes, and it is, uh, the subtitle is that farming is not new to black people. So this is an article in Environmental Health News about a black community farming. Yeah, it covers a lot of different topics, actually. For more... So, for more than 150 years, from the rural south to northern cities, black people have used farming to build self-determined communities and resist oppressive structures that tear them down. Today, agriculture still serves an important role in the lives of black people, which is why we see urban agriculture product er, projects and programs in Philadelphia, Detroit, and Washington, D.C., and other cities across the United States. In all of these cities, there are black-led organizations cultivating food and land sovereignty by helping individuals and communities regain agency and ownership over their food system. My journey in in food and land work began long before I was born. This, this is the writer, is the, writer. Yeah. the writer is saying that my ancestors were enslaved Africans forced to farm under abhorrent conditions in South Carolina, Texas, and Georgia. In 2012, I started my first professional job working at a food justice and nutrition education nonprofit in Philadelphia. I worked with youth from across West Philly to explore connections between food, agriculture, culture, uh, sustainability and leadership. Born and raised where she spent most of her days. <laughs> All right. So she first developed a passion for food and sovereignty in agriculture at the Black Farmers Conference in 2013. Dr. Monica White, author of Freedom Farmers and professor of environmental justice, was the keynote speaker. She spoke of black farming cooperatives in the South and how they connect to black folks growing food in cities today. That sounds based as all hell. So the author goes on to say, what I learned is that farming is not new to black people. While some dominant modern narratives talk about urban agriculture as an innovative way to build community and fight food insecurity, black folks in this country have been growing food in cities for as long as they have lived in cities. Before that, our ancestors lived in deep relationship with the land. The first time in my 22 years, I understood that growing food is a tool for dismantling systemic oppression. I also realized that black academics have a critical role to play in agricultural resistance and freedom movements. And it was this movement that I decided to apply for graduate programs. Uh, just to correct that, like, it was this moment that then she decided to apply for graduate school. So as a PhD candidate, I am exploring and understanding the ways that urban agriculture impacts the mental health, spirituality, and collective agency of black communities using a wide range of analytical tools such as mapping, focus groups, and spatial analysis. In some cases, I am developing new 
survey and measurement tools specifically for these communities in this context. I engage in this research using environmental justice approach grounded in racial justice, history, culture, and community participation. Before we even begin to do this research, it is important for us to understand the roots of black farming. Black farmers across the South created cooperatives largely in response to the anti-black government in society. In response to supermarkets not serving black customers, in response to white people terrorizing black folks when they tried to register to vote, these cooperatives were a means of providing economic autonomy, political education, and collective agency to black people in the South. Uh, despite migration patterns from the South to the North and Midwest, many black urban communities have kept in touch with their agricultural roots, establishing farms and gardens throughout the United States. Black people have ancestral ties to this land, to caring for it, nurturing it, loving it, and allowing it to heal our communities and us. We have faced immeasurable discriminatory practices and policies as we sought to reclaim and live in relationship with the land. We must not forget this history as we engage black agricultural communities in our research and endeavors. Danger lies in the face and narrative of urban agriculture being co-opted by white liberals and academics. It is presented as something new, trendy, and without sociopolitical and historical ties or influences. This limited perspective views white community gardens and urban farming alone as acts of social justice, which is problematic because it inadvertently attempts to erase the decades of urban agricultural practices, resistance, and activism that black communities have engaged in. White-led urban agriculture projects receive the majority of grants and institutional funding. This further replicates the cycle of narrative dominance, white land ownership, and the physical exclusion of black and brown folks from access to land, wealth, and resources, and we must use our tools, resources, and privileges as researchers to stop this cycle. So then it goes, resilience in the face of exploitation. History lesson time. So there's a picture, and it's a, a caravan holding signs that read, support black farmers and caravan to Washington. That's nice. So, in the decades following the Civil War, black folks sought to acquire land as a means to provide for themselves, their families, and communities, and become independent of previous slave and plantation owners. But they faced many obstacles. White landowners and merchants routinely denied black farmers access to private credit. They were instead often offered exploitative sharecropping or rental agreements. This resulted in many black farmers being unable to keep up with mortgage and debt payments. They're often forced to sell their land for far less than what it was worth. Well, that sounds freaking familiar. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah, you think? So can we pause and talk about resilience? Despite these many concerted efforts to thwart black farmers, they still acquired more than 16 million acres of land at the height of black farming in the U.S. In 1920, there are more than 51 million black farmers who made up 14% of the overall farming population. Despite the preceding decades, terrorism, Jim Crow, and increased industrialization in northern cities drove many black people from the South to places like Philadelphia, Washington, D.C., and Detroit. 
From 1920 to 1997, the number of black farmers declined by about 95% nationwide. And however, black farmers did not sit idly by while their communities and livelihoods were attacked. They organized and protested and rallied. In 1997, they brought a lawsuit against the U.S. Department of Agriculture in the Pigford versus Gelman case for decades of alleged discrimination. This resulted in one of the largest civil settlements in U.S. history of $1.2 billion. This may seem like a generous amount, but it isn't once you consider the tens of thousands of black farmers who face discrimination at the hands of the USDA. The average amount a farmer could request was $50,000. After losing hundreds of thousands of dollars in farming equipment, land, seasons, and harvests, that doesn't even put a band-aid on the wound created by the USDA in anti-black racism. So this would Today, be an example of um, this, uh, this lawsuit, this settlement, is not reparations. Right. So today, there are 45,000 black farmers in the U.S., making up only 1% of the farming population and, owing, and owning far fewer acres of land compared to 1920. This happened through a series of USDA discriminatory policies and procedures, such as heirs' property, unjustified loan and crop insurance denials, and blatant prejudice like forcing black farmers off their land. The Great Migration, while often solely and incorrectly attributed to job opportunities, occurred because black people were being hunted and terrorized by racist mobs in the South. This, too, contributed to the decline in numbers of black farmers. So black farmers and gardeners continue to push for their community's right to self-determination, to survive and to thrive. My hometown of Philadelphia, food justice activists and urban growers protest to save their farms and gardens, although city council control of land sales often make it hard for community members to contend with wealthy developers. These growers and activists understand that in a city where 81% of food stores offer mostly unhealthy food choices, a major key to population health and collective healing is having control over what goes in our bodies. Dad have also shown that those unhealth, unhealthful food stores are disproportionately located in black neighborhoods. Unsurprisingly, heart disease is the leading cause of death in, in Philadelphia. Heart disease is what the doctors listed on my father's death certificate just over a month ago. They ruled that as the cause of death, despite the neglect, negligence, and implicit healthcare bias that likely contributed to his passing, diet-related illnesses are often attributed to individual behavior and poor lifestyle choices. But the reality is that these illnesses and deaths are the result of systemic racism. Black people in Philadelphia disproportionately experience targeted unhealthy food marketing, lack of access to health care, and inadequate educational systems, all of which can lead to mental and physical health challenges. These challenges are exacerbated by pandemics like COVID-19, where practitioners make choices often rooted in racism about who lives and who dies, whose life is valuable and whose life can be discarded. Pandemics like COVID-19 emphasize why community control of food systems and land are not just important, 
but are quite literally our means of surviving, healing, and thriving. Though grassroots organizing, policy advocacy, and urban planning, we are pushing for access to land for emotional, spiritual, physical, and collective healing because our community's health and livelihoods depend on it. Gardens and farms provide people with exposure to greenness, opportunities for physical activity, and potential benefits to the microbiome since exposure to soil and its many microorganisms can boost our gut health. They offer spaces to connect and engage with our neighbors. They provide reclamation and renewal of our spiritual and ancestral relationships to the land. Community-led urban agriculture uh, projects are a means of sharing education and information, strengthening social capital and support. Agriculture can offer black people opportunities for economic autonomy while providing safe spaces for community members to gather and celebrate without fear of criminalization or state-sanctioned brutality. Don't need a permit. Black Black agriculture provides a way to engage with the disturbing history of this country, that we live in a place built on stolen indigenous land and the brutal enslavement and stolen land of my ancestors. It opens the door to us understanding how all this shapes our collective journey towards liberation. That sounds like the end of it, but it's actually not. Showing up for your community. Now it turns back to the personal journey, I guess. It is in and through this work that my activism and scholarship intersect. As a scholar, I am intentional about how I frame my research. While there is value in establishing your reputation and securing tenure before challenging the status quo, I choose not to wait until I have a PhD, professorship, or tenure to be bold and honest in my work. Black land loss is happening now across cities and rural communities. This is why, as a student, I choose to name environmental racism and injustices in my research, pushing my department and school to think about the myriad of ways institutions have done harm to marginalized communities and to think about socio-political and historical contexts that shape our present-day environments. And while that may leave some colleagues uncomfortable, you must get a little uncomfortable first in order to do and be better. Also, I hold myself more accountable to the communities I serve and with whom I work. Black and brown Philly farmers are who, in many ways, sense and give me blessing to pursue graduate work as a means to support our collective agricultural resistance. Everything that I call out and choose to uplift in the academy, I've learned from these communities, and I will continue to acknowledge that in my research. To me, my line or my work is that of scholar activism. It means being so committed to change, healing, and liberation in a place and for a community that you continually show up for them. This requires sacrifice. I am not advocating that everyone make these kinds of sacrifices. However, for me, this looks like six-hour monthly drives from Boston, where I currently live, to be in the community with these folks, to continually learn about what's happening on the ground in Philly at home. From community-based participatory research to conference planning to offering competitive stipends to all the community members who contribute this work, everything that I do and have done in the academy has been to amplify the voices of black and brown growers in Philly. At each step of the research process, I go back to this community to seek input. The entire field of public health needs to rethink how it engages communities. 
especially considering that marginalized folks have the greatest understanding of the nuanced ways that environmental factors impact their communities. We must uplift and value their expertise and acknowledge systems as such, if not more than we do those with PhDs. So that was Ashley, an essay by Ashley Gripper. Yeah, she is a PhD candidate in the Environmental Health Department at the Harvard T.H. Kahn School of Public Health. She is also a health policy research scholar, a program of or a program of the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation, and an active member of Soil Generation, a black and brown led coalition of urban farmers, gardeners, and food justice activists. Through her policy work with Soil Generation, she is a part of the team responsible for designing the Urban Agriculture Plan for the entire city of Philadelphia. And then there's huh. the website and her Twitter. Now that's something we don't have around here. We don't have an urban agriculture plan. I mean, we have a large organization called Capital Roots, which owns a lot of community gardens, and they basically rent plots uh, with membership. You know, it's not expensive, but it's like very limited, and uh, and they do not like break even at all, right? Because um, they're kind of overbloated, you could say. But they have a um, food hub, and they have a veggie mobile, and a lot of other programs that your classic little community garden doesn't have when it's just a lot. But um, let's talk um, just to follow up on that, uh, which was complete fire, of course. Uh, is a piece from Tree Hugger. It's been a while since I've covered you something from them. The number of climate victory gardens has grown rapidly in the past year. Green America reports a surge of interest in people gardening for climate reasons. This is written by a Catherine Markinko, published or last month. If it seems like more people are gardening than ever before, you're not wrong. Green America is a nonprofit that promotes the creation of climate victory gardens. It tracks these in an interactive online map that just surpassed an impressive 8,000 milestone. As a point of reference, there were only... 2,400 gardens on the map of April 2020. But that number has nearly quadrupled since reaching 8,239. What is a climate victory garden? It's a garden that relies on regenerative methods, particularly those that minimize soil disturbance and improve the soil's ability to hold carbon, meaning using like um, the kind of store-bought soil and stuff, miracle Grow, whatever. The name acts as a reminder of just how important gardens can be in the fight against the climate crisis. It comes because we got to fight a war. It's got to be a war. It's got to be a fight. It comes from the victory gardens that were planted with just the name. And we do have a local uh, version of this, which is um, the Albany Victory Gardens, which, again, a uh, name for a similar reason. And that was started a few years, several years ago. By the late 1940s, nearly 2 million gardens produced 40% of produce consumed in the U.S. This was during World War II. Or both war wars. Now we are fighting a war of a different kind. Gardens can reduce greenhouse gas emissions by shortening the number of miles food has to travel. If done properly, they can improve soil health, reduce erosion, sequester carbon. Backyard gardens can produce food without harmful chemical inputs and boost food security. Now, backyard gardens, though, is kind of a break in the... We should kind of maintain something of a standard uh, division of labor. 
I didn't look into the actual facts, but it was referenced by someone else that like someone did this uh, YouTube video, uh, well, project, video project, where he's like, I'm going to make a chicken sandwich from scratch and like by myself. So taking into account all the resources needed to, uh, I guess, grow the grow the whatever plants he used to make the flour, to bake the bread, to get the make the vegetables, raise the chicken, all the effort. It was like hundreds of, of labor hours to personally make your own chicken sandwich from scratch. But that's what you know, but you do a division of labor, one person grows the cucumbers, one person grows this, you know. We shouldn't all be like if we if we if we a message of this program at the moment is we can't really rely on the individual actions of like I'll lower my footprint. I will grow food in my backyard. That is not enough. It's not going to be enough, uh, especially since we all don't have the time. You know, so one of the things that bothers me uh, what, what, if I stress myself out, it's thinking I need to do a lot of projects myself or that because there are things that aren't happening or aren't being done that I have to do it individually. You know, I have to start the mesh network. I have to, but I want to see a division of labor where some guys are building the mesh network. So we have an internet free from monopoly. Others are doing the gardening so I can pick up produce free of the monopoly of, you know, growers not having to go to the supermarket for particular items. Uh, or we have a food hub where we make all the basic uh, grocery items that we get at the grocery store, pickles, pasta, whatever. But you need a community space to do that to keep your overhead low, and so the division of labor can be done by various people. That itself is a big project. Got to fundraise for it. Got to organize it. It's And then it becomes kind of overwhelming. Green America, but many hands make light work, right? Green America encourages everyone to start gardens and to upload their location to the map. So this is just a particular project. Of course, this does not account for all of the types of gardens and uh, self-sufficiency stuff that people do, uh, communities or otherwise. Let's see. Larson describes some of the different types of gardens on the map. They range from an herb garden uh, or include a private garden in a backyard as well as community ones. People have planted climate victory gardens in the right of way, in right of ways at schools, really all over the place. Growing food has the added climate benefits of offsetting food miles, yada yada, basic stuff. Green America isn't concerned about the details of, let's see, if people want to grow enough produce in their garden to feed themselves year round, they would need to allocate at least 200 square feet a person. Not everyone has access to that kind of space, nor the time or the skill required to maintain it. Hey, that's what I was just explaining. Green America isn't concerned about those details. It just wants people to get their hands dirty, to become familiar with the miraculous process that is growing food and don't understand the connection between doing so and fighting for the climate, uh, fighting for our world. Uh, you can learn about Climate Victory Gardens by watching short video, yada, yada. So there's that little quick thing. I will end the show with a video from published in The Intercept, it's called A Message from the Future, Part 2, Years of Repair. Now, this is uh, being shared by Naomi Klein. Are you aware of Naomi Klein, Michael? No. I am not super familiar with Naomi Klein, no. She wrote The Shock Doctrine, 
a lot of various books. Uh, one was No Logo, which was about corporate, you know, control and stuff. She's kind of changed what her like major project is, you know. And um, let's see, the past six years, it's been Green New Deal promotion. I think her latest was called This Changes Everything. So it was basically covering the climate movement overall. And uh, so we got a video. It's it's also including art, so I do encourage to watch it. But the audio itself is good, too. And so it's called The Years of Repair, which is... I'm not going to read all of the article joining it written by Naomi Klein. But it is... Let's see. There was a place I wanted to pick up. Uh, a short piece of art is not a political platform, and so it was never our goal to be comprehensive. Rather, we look for the threads of connection in the hopes that they could inspire more. In the film, COVID-19 acts as a kind of character in the drama, almost like a tough teacher instructing humanity in a series of lessons that it should have learned. Lessons about the essential labor that makes life possible and enjoyable and yet it has been so persistently discounted. This video is um, kind of a future focus of the next 20 years, let's say, like um, the, big, the big thing, the big revolution comes, and the years of repair that follow, um, because the revolution will not be building a new system so much as repairing the society we have, being more listening, and, and having a healing mindset, not a war mindset, <laughs> which is why Victory Garden, you know, just fighting, fighting, you know, whatever. But confrontation is also realistic, you know, in, in what has to happen. So let's see, I'll read another paragraph to see if it's... This was written last year, so it's like beating Trump is urgent. You know, she's kind of a standard progressive Dem times. <laughs> Looking back, it's hard to believe that we've rebuilt our community from the ground up with our own hands. The first seeds were planted way back in the terror and tenderness of the pandemic. And then change bloomed in the streets, in the fire and struggle of the uprisings. Around here, we'll never forget the day that the last prisoners were released, walking out into the arms of their loved ones. The easy part was finding work. The Community Care Corps was always looking for people in those days, whether for universal family care, burying border walls, or green new public housing going up one pod at a time. Yep, it was a good time for busy hands. Funny, thinking back to the first wave of the pandemic, that's what you really remember. Hands. Washing, scrubbing, disinfecting, washing again, picturing each other's hands, all the hands that had touched whatever we were touching, the hands that packed the box, that picked the tomato, that planted the seed, the hands that stroked the brow, that said goodbye. The hands were us, all of us, that web of hand-to-hand Breath-to-breath relationships was a reminder. We are all entangled, making each other sick, keeping each other alive. That was just one of the lessons of COVID-19. It started in the first great pause, when the smog cleared and the rich fled the cities, when poverty dropped its disguise and racist inequality drew the map of the disease. As the roar of the traffic faded, 
we are rose to birdsong and ambulance sirens, the virus showed us what was truly essential. And we learned again and again that so many of us doing essential work were being treated as sacrificial. From nursing homes to detention facilities, meatpacking plants and fulfillment centers, the virus exposed the cruelty of these warehouses of efficiency and profit. Then things got worse. In 2023, super droughts led to mega floods. Locusts carved a path across continents and hyper-typhoons drove millions from their homes. COVID-23 raced through storm shelters and refugee camps. Supplies ran out again. Meanwhile, dinosaurs roamed the halls of power, bellowing that more sacrifice was needed. But every time they cranked up that rusty old machine called economic growth, the cloud of sickness and death grew. And we couldn't breathe. Couldn't breathe from the asthma in our polluted communities, from the smoke of those fires. We couldn't breathe with a knee on our necks in the clouds of tear gas as we shouted, Black Lives Matter. And that is how the virus changed everything. We finally understood that we couldn't keep patching up the same broken systems. We had to build something new. What was needed was a spark. That spark was us. After months of organizing, the viral rent strike was like a starting gun. Then came the essential worker strike. Delivery drivers, street cleaners, and farm workers got together and said, Enough! This time, people didn't just clap from their balconies. We flooded into the streets to join together. One of the leaders was Luciela, a young food courier. When a police bullet stole her life, the crowds exploded in size and then exploded again, spreading across borders like a counter-virus. The sparks look different in every country as the wildfire strikes leapt across borders. Economies ground to a halt, this time blockaded by workers. We lost too many young heroes as states brought out the iron fist, but it was no match for the rest feast of solidarity. Soon, authoritarian rulers started to topple like statues and new governments were suddenly nervous about ignoring the streets. We joined hands and pushed further, launching the years of repair. The first step was rebuilding the economy around the core of essential work, food and farming, care for young and old, public health, not to mention the essential labor of the more-than-human world, the winged pollinators, the leafy oxygen makers. The Full Employment Act made the new priorities clear, and there was a wave of new worker cooperatives in everything from mental health support to public art and tree planting. Many bosses were made redundant. Our information ecology needed tending too, and so we built a digital commons vaccinated it against surveillance, 
and built up our herd immunity to disinformation. Fossil fuels were running on fumes by that point, so we harnessed their final profits to clean up their messes. Whatever we could, we did outdoors. School, theatre, celebrating. At first, because it was safer. Then, because we realised it made us happier. Nobody talked about missing shopping. Anyway, the right to repair movement meant that a lot of stuff got fixed rather than thrown away and replaced. With life moving at a slower pace, we finally had time to look back. And we began the most important repair of all, repairing relationships. In colonial countries like the US, Canada, Australia and the UK, those were hard conversations. But Truth and Reparations Commissions helped some of us face the truth about the violent conquests of the past and how they shaped our world. That guided where we repaired and how. It turned out that once we fully funded schools and housing and healthcare, we didn't need those bloated budgets for policing, prisons and war. And ultimately, the flow of money on planet Earth had to be reversed. So the North finally started paying its debts and the South finally stopped. Around here, the Land Back program began the historic process of returning some of the stolen land to indigenous jurisdiction. In the process, we remembered how taking care of the Earth lays the ground for taking care of each other. Within just a few years, we could see the bottom of the river again. And it was safe to drink and fish in its waters. Things aren't perfect, of course. Between mutating viruses and our warming world, there's always new storms headed our way. But when they come, we're ready. With our networks of nurses and neighbors, our small farms and big forests, our systems of care and repair, no one is sacrificed. Everyone is essential. So, uh, so uh, it, re- it kind of answered the question. I was like, "What, what, what, what do the makers of this uh, video and, and Naomi Klein think the catalyst?" Well, labor agitation, a big general strike. The steps toward a general strike, though, like we never really got there in, in America in the twenties. We had lots of big labor strikes. Those were through large unions and um, and more militant yeah, unions the way as well. We build the labor strike is through the unions and we don't have union membership. We need the before we can get to a lab, uh, general strike, we need to rebuild the labor union. Yeah. Or the labor uh, movement or or just or organizations in which membership doesn't have to be by workplace uh, or profession but just a general workers, which is why the IWW, if it's all workers in, anyone can be a kind of member, is kind of where I feel potential is. So I direct people oh, there. Really? And organizations like a party, because, well, any active citizen can be in a, a party member if you kind of agree with a general or if you like a general platform. Uh, right now I'm kind of working with a, in a committee of sorts so to kind of make a local Green Party platform and I think the way we'll circumvent a lot of infighting or, or long drawn out arguments or email chains is if the platform is not some official mandate, but like this is an advisory document that you can pick and choose from. 
people can put anti-vax stuff in there, it doesn't mean the Upper Hudson Green Party is anti-vax or something. It's, it's there's these right. are possibilities of the me- like get, put in input from the membership. Maybe it could work. Maybe it wouldn't because people feel really strongly, right? You know, you put something like. Usually a platform needs to be a bit conformist. It has to be not, you know, nothing too controversial in it. You know, like uh, we proposed like a banning of zoos once uh, in the state platform. And you had people like, we can't put that in there. That makes us look silly. I'm like, I think you don't understand. People under 30 don't like zoos. We don't like seeing uh, animals in cages, no matter how big the cage is. Uh, Whatever. But uh, and there's other ways of educating kids about animals. But yeah, but certainly like it seems like the most, yeah, so it's like how we get to the big general strike that overturns the government or at least installs a new government that then starts passing the legislation that is, you know, the the true, the actual anti-corruption legislation, the money out of politics, the the war, the, the guaranteed right. job, the, or the guarantee versus, you know, and then the actual debate of guaranteed job versus guaranteed income can actually be meaningful because it's actually being done in the legislative platform or in the legislative right. process and not just the, the activism process of what are the activism activists fighting about. Okay. Um, let's wrap up. So part, parting thoughts for this episode, few positive stories, environmental stuff. And yes, uh, we'll, we'll do another episode where we're buzz kills about stuff, but there's another low tech, um, story about how the soviet union like grew all its own citrus fruit and how it was able to do that through through innovation um anyway my profound thanks for listening which is a skill as important as talking so i plan to listen to any constructive feedback ideas for the show or stories and topics you'd like to hear discussed please send it to us via social media on facebook twitter mastodon that's at uh koatev dot uh three laps or three lefts at uh, Koatev, which is like the anarchist Macedon page. Um, this program is made as a part of an independent community radio station supported uh, materially by members and uh, a corporate grant, uh, but also underwriters that we are looking for. Uh, along with many others of a donation, uh, you too can become a supporting member at WCALP. Uh, go to grandarts.org. Or you can also support us at Volunteers with your time because uh, labor hours are also important, and also telling anyone you know about us and the show, Three Left Show, liking and sharing our pages as you might do. This episode and the last 10 are broadcast on most podcasting apps, but a full archive of podcast show going back four years, along with notes, info, and sources about um, for each episode, are all found at threelefts.news. Of course, the most important thing is to put the ideas, thinking, and projects talked about here in practice for yourself. So be well, keep it rad, and keep waving the flags of the three lefts. Let me just cue up the music. Any parting thoughts, Michael? Um, I like this episode. I learned a lot. I liked uh, the piece about the black urban uh, garden or urban farming. I thought that that's uh, – I love that idea. I love the idea of growing your own food even in an urban environment. Yeah, that was cool stuff. Good stuff. Yeah, and 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 a reminder that it is when we talk of the marginalized leading, that's kind of what we're talking about. Like the black academic, the, the Ashley was her name, 
you know, she's she's the leader yeah. along with all the people community that she's revisiting and working with and keeping in touch with her roots. That's cool stuff. 